Hello and welcome back to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Dylitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And as always, here with my good mate and all-round uh, great guy, Richard Hill. Hi, Richard. Yes, I'm over here being great. Uh, we had um, uh, had a recent uh, birthday, so I'm uh, I'm teetering on the edge of another decade. And uh, the kids enjoying them and having a wonderful time. Uh, and we caught up with each other a few weeks ago, which is absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, and uh, you, you, you are taller than I thought. Uh, <laughs> but, but we're doing some more stuff. You know, we're, we're continuing to talk about these wonderful speakers from the Holistic Recovery Summit. Summit. Yeah. Uh, see, you know, catch the link in our emails. Catch the link in the uh, in the the, the web page for this podcast and the other ones we're doing. Yeah. And we're speaking with somebody uh, who I uh, I've been following for while uh, he's very very active in uh, the area of mindfulness tell us a bit about him Matt yeah so uh, Dr Eric Garland distinguished professor and he's working at a lot of different places um, in Utah uh, and uh, the the College of Social Work uh, Center of Mindfulness and Integrative Health and Intervention Development um, integrative medicine is very, very involved. Actually, what I learned was that he is the most published author in the area of mindfulness. Wow. Full stop. Like, Just, so it's pretty amazing. That's amazing. I mean, I've seen his stuff everywhere for, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but yep. he's, a, he's, a, he's a professor at the Utah University. He's on other boards. He he works in a, in a research area for cancer. Um, yep. He's a really, really interesting fellow. Yeah. Now, um, what caught my attention uh, is the development of his innovative mindfulness-based um, therapy, uh, and we're going to talk about that today, uh, therapy for addiction, and it's called Mindfulness Orientated Recovery Enhancement, or MORE. So um, so when we refer to more, that's what we're re referring yeah. to. And there'll be a link in the show notes um, so you can go and, go and check it out. And uh, he's got some great graphics in that there that explain it really well. Yeah, beautiful. Go to his webpage. Go to the holistic webs, uh, holistic recovery summit, which of course mm -hmm. is free, uh, free for the first viewing. And but you can also purchase uh, the ongoing uh, replays. Um, but and uh, perhaps we should hear a word from the summit itself. If you're interested in deepening your understanding of addiction and how best to treat it, you might want to check out the holistic recovery summit. This is a free online conference which brings together 35 world-leading clinical psychologists, researchers and practitioners who will share with you their best practices for mind, body, social and spiritual approaches to addiction treatment, enabling you to be at the forefront of evidence-based care. With a lineup including Stephen Porges, Janina Fisher, Ian McGilchrist, Pat Ogden, Anna Lemke, Stephen Hayes, Richard Schwartz, and 28 others, this really is a once-in-a-lifetime learning opportunity. The best bit is it's 100% free to attend live and you can do so from the comfort of home. You'll also be able to upgrade to your recordings and certification pass after registration, although this is entirely optional. For more information, please check out the sign-up link in the description. Dr. Eric Garland, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy. So I'm so glad to meet you. Pleasure to meet you too. Yeah, and Richard here, uh, really good. I've I've known about your work for a long time, and uh, uh, fantastic to actually see you in the flesh and 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 talk to you. And 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 what is interesting um, is about the 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 work you do is very interesting. But the the fact you put the yards beneath it, you do a lot of research, 
Uh, so there's a few things we want to talk about. I mean, we're very excited about you being at the summit because of all the, the, the background you've got. Um, but you've got this MORE program, M-O-R-E program, which is uh, uh, fantastic. And then you 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 got into all this research and, and dealing about that. Could you fill us in a little bit? Maybe give us a, we've given a little background to you, but what's the story? How did this become so intriguing and so entrenching uh, for your, your thinking and your ongoing practice? Well, you know, it's it's a long story, but I, I think I think to summarize, I I had a personal mindfulness meditation practice for many years, and it was really a, a key approach, not only for my well-being, but also for uh for the spiritual dimension of my life to tell you the truth and so so that really was the the central core that all this work emanated from uh studying a hefty dose of indian and chinese religion and philosophy philosophy of mind um, and that that really informed my work as a psychotherapist when i started doing this work uh, I was initially was not a, a researcher. I was a psychotherapist and I was working in my private practice, uh, figuring out how to, how to weave in meditation into the practice of psychotherapy. And this was <clears throat> uh, several decades ago when, when it wasn't anything like it is today where, where mindfulness is such a, a, a key part of modern psychotherapy. At this time, there really weren't very many prominent models out there, uh, describing how this could be done effectively. So I just started to try to figure it out on my own. Then when I began to become a scientist and I started to I started to learn about the neuroscience of addiction, I started to uh, realize that there were there were key approaches that were missing from the way that most addictions treatment was being conducted in the world and that we could actually learn from the neuroscience to modify our approach to start targeting, what, what I what I really believe is the primary causative factor in the the development and the maintenance of addiction, which is the dysregulation of reward processes in the brain, and so that that really uh, encouraged me to start integrating other techniques into this work, uh, namely techniques that came out of positive psychology, with this emphasis on on savoring savoring natural healthy pleasure and um, and the meaning that flows out of that so so that that's really where this this work came from uh, a personal practice of mindfulness as a, as a spiritual approach and then melding that with the discoveries from affective neuroscience about what's happening in the brain during the process of addiction and what that has to tell us about healing from addiction yeah, fantastic. Now, you, you mentioned savoring, and uh, I'm wondering if we're able to maybe dive in a little bit um, to the more model, um, and just just take us through that that bit of a workflow of of the the therapy that you've developed. Um, very succinctly, I might say, um, it's very easy to uh, to understand and follow, as um, people will discover. So, yeah, saying, sure, just yeah. a quick, just more a quick. Just a quick comment before you go in, because I know you're going there. Just adding, because that that savoring uh, uh, of of life, that, that disconnection we have from the enjoyment of being a human being, which mindfulness brings it in. I just want to highlight, you know, just my thought quickly right. there on that. Mm, but yeah. please, uh, please, now this this fabulous process uh, more will let you expand the the acronym for us. 
Yes. So MORE stands for Mindfulness Oriented Recovery Enhancement. And MORE is really grounded upon the foundations of three great therapeutic traditions within psychotherapy. The first is mindfulness training. The second is cognitive behavioral therapy. And the third is positive psychology. And so from these traditions, we, we derive the pillar, the therapeutic pillars of more mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring. And uh, these components are really intended to address the, the deficits that, that people with addiction are struggling with that continue to propel and maintain the addiction. So for example, um, one of the things that, that maintains addiction is habit-related processes. People develop automatized behavioral reactions to drug cues, uh, to, which, which elicit this automatic drug-seeking behavior and craving. And so addiction, in effect, becomes an automatic habit. Well, mindfulness is, a, is the perfect antidote to automatic habits because it involves conscious self-regulation conscious self-control and awareness of automatic patterns and then the capacity to, to shift them. Um, the second piece of more is, is reappraisal. So this is the process of reframing uh, life adversity, essentially re-perceiving, shifting one's view of a stressful or adverse life event in such a way as to see that event as a source of meaning or a source of personal growth or strength. So, uh, so in more, we take this approach to challenge, helping patients to challenge negative automatic thoughts, to reduce their negative emotions and to prevent them from slipping back into drug use. And then the third piece is this savoring component, which as you described, Richard, it really involves focusing mindfulness um, on what is pleasant, beautiful, and good in life. And then appreciating and amplifying any positive emotions or pleasurable body sensations that arise during the savoring practice. And this technique is really intended on helping people to make themselves feel good naturally in order to, 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 to find that inner wellspring spring of, of contentment and well-being so that they don't have to seek it outside of themselves through a drug. And so these three, these three foundational components of more um, lead to this fourth, what I call an emergent property and that is self-transcendence, which is this sense of being connected to something greater than the self, um, which, which is obviously alluded to in 12-step approaches, talking about treating addiction by connecting to a higher power. So in more, we're actually giving people techniques and, and practical guidance to, to actually accessing that type of experience. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful segue to what I was just thinking because I, I was so pleased in our other uh, chat just beforehand that you know my mentor and uh, and and colleague Ernest Rossi, and what we used to use as that 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 other sense that greater thing uh, really was uh, was Otto back in the twenties who talked about it in spirituality, but this word numinosum, the 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 magnificent, the marvelous, the expansive, the extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I think there are many who uh, feel this very strongly um, by having religious beliefs and spiritual spiritual beliefs, but we really can get it. Um, uh, this is a natural part of us. Uh, one of the things I always talk about is I, I wouldn't be surprised if mindfulness evolutionarily uh, placed itself within us just because of sunset, which mm. is this great numinous, uh, numinous place. So it's a very natural process process. Uh, mindfulness within us as a human being but we have lost it 
we've had to uh, you know, d- uh, prescriptively return to it. What, what sort of thoughts do you have about there, about, uh, um, you know, why it's so uh, losable, um, but then it's regainable? Yeah, I mean, I, that's a that's a great question. And I think I agree with you that it is a basic human capacity. I, th- I think it's actually a basic dimension of human consciousness. You know, we, we practice mindfulness meditation, we practice mindfulness techniques, but these techniques are really just activating this basic property of the mind that exists within us, that is really the nature of consciousness itself. So, um, so we, we all have it within us. So why, why do we lose it? I think um, a lifetime of, of trauma, a lifetime of egocentrism, a lifetime of, of, uh, getting lost in linguistic distinctions uh, between self and other and uh, some sort of idealized reality versus what we're actually experiencing in the present moment. Um, Life just beats it out of us to tell you the truth. And so I think we have to learn how to reclaim that, that sense that is our, our natural inheritance, our evolutionarily uh, granted inheritance uh, to build on what you're saying. Um, it is the basic nature of mind and we can find it when we peel back all of the stuff that's laid on top of it. Now, uh, being the researcher that you are, um, let's talk, talk about efficacy and um, what sort of results are you getting um, putting this therapeutic practice in, um, you know, before people that are going through your studies uh, and even, uh, you know, your, your own personal experience do you, I, I don't know, are you still doing therapy yourself or you're just purely researching now? No, yes, I'm definitely still an active psychotherapist. Okay. But in terms of the data, the data is really quite clear that more is an evidence-based treatment for addiction and its comorbidities. Uh, we There have been over, I think, 12 randomized control trials to date on the more intervention. And the, the, in total, these trials have involved well over a thousand patients. And... Um, Recently, a meta-analysis was published, actually, of all the randomized controlled trials of Moore, and it showed that Moore produced statistically significant reductions in addictive behaviors, craving, psychiatric symptoms, and chronic pain relative to a whole bunch of different active control conditions. So just to highlight one of those studies for you, I'd like to talk about the the largest randomized controlled trial of Moore. This was a, a $3 million trial funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, it was published last year in the top medical journal, JAMA Internal Medicine. It was, it was a pretty big study. So this study involved 250 people, all of whom were misusing opioids at the beginning of the study, and they, they also had chronic pain. And in this study, we randomized, the, we randomized them to receive eight weeks of more or eight weeks of a standard supportive group therapy control condition. And we found that more reduced opioid misuse by 45% at the nine-month follow-up point, nearly tripling the effect of standard supportive group therapy. So just an extraordinarily powerful effect on reducing addictive behavior. And at the same time, more significantly decreased uh, chronic pain. So it was reducing physical pain, but more also decreased emotional pain in that more had a powerful antidepressant effect and more also reduced PTSD symptoms as well. So in, in uh, 59% of patients who, who surpassed a clinical cut point for PTSD, 
more led to clinically significant reductions in PTSD symptoms. So we show these powerful, this powerful efficacy in reducing addictive behavior, physical pain, and also emotional pain. But at the same time, we've shown in multiple studies that more is producing these therapeutic effects by increasing the brain and the body's sensitivity to natural healthy pleasure. So we've shown using EEG and heart rate variability that more actually increases the body's physiological responsiveness to natural healthy pleasure. And the more responsive the person's brain and body become to natural healthy pleasure, the less they crave drugs and the less they engage in, in, in substance misuse. So that's really powerful to me, this, this notion that we can treat addiction by teaching people how to become more sensitive to natural healthy pleasure. This will actually reduce the pull of the drug and thereby decrease addictive behavior. Um, so so that's, 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 a, that's a really exciting finding. And one other scientific finding that I think, two more, <laughs> two, two more that, that may interest your, uh, your listeners. So we, we've shown time and time again that more also decreases uh, the extent to which an individual is triggered by drug-related cues. So whether we measure this with autonomic responses like heart rate, or whether we met, we're showing this with EEG responses in the brain, more actually decreases the extent to which a patient is being triggered by the drug-related cue. So their brains are, are becoming less reactive to drug-related cues. So that's also really important, right, in this, in, this, uh, in this picture I'm painting for you, that more is decreasing the, the sensitivity of the brain to drug-related cues, but then it's increasing the sensitivity of the brain to natural healthy pleasure. So it's really restructuring these reward processes in the brain that are so important to, to recovery from addiction. And then the last finding to tell you about, uh, the one, one of the ones that really excites me the most, uh, we recently published results from the largest neuroscientific study of mindfulness as a treatment for addiction. We published this last year in the top uh, journal Science Advances. And we showed it in a sample of 165 chronic opioid users that patients treated with more showed significant increases in frontal midline theta EEG activity mm -hmm. in their brains while they practiced mindfulness meditation. And uh, the deeper that the, the deeper states of self-transcendence that patients achieved during mindfulness meditation, the, the greater the increase in the theta activity in their brains. And the greater the increase in the theta in their brains, the greater the reduction in opioid misuse nearly nine months later. So we, we showed that more is actually causing uh, brain changes that have anti, an anti-addictive uh, property and that really these, these effects on the brain are tied to the ability to go so deeply into the meditative state that you experience this connection with something greater than the self, than the self, this numinousness that, that mm -hmm. Richard was talking about. The, the, the deeper the contact with the numinous, the greater the reduction in addictive behavior. Or if you want to put it really simply, and, and I did, I think I did put it this way in my talk at the, at the conference, um, it may sound a little crass, but basically you can, you can actually create a natural high through meditation. And the extent to which you can create a natural high means that you don't need to seek that high from outside of yourself with a drug. You can just supply that to yourself in a healthy, self, in a healthy, sustaining, meaningful way.
with talking about this, the, the experiments, it just takes me back to the, those experiments um, uh, and or the, the group of experiments, you know, the initial ones with the rats where they, they had a pretty stark environment. They had the option of water or, or uh, cocaine, I think, and they quite a few of them actually took the cocaine uh, till they died. Um, but then someone said, well, well, that's a bit unnatural. And so gave them an enriched environment and, uh, and company. And so they played around and had friends and they actually not only uh, um, uh, didn't you know, take a lot of the drugs, they actually rejected it. They actually preferred to have the water. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're connecting these findings to, that, to, the, rat, to the rat studies about an, an enriched environment, I think is very apt. And really all of this work accords with what I call my structuring reward hypothesis, which is this idea that if we can increase sensitivity to natural healthy pleasure, this will reduce the pull of the drug and thereby decrease craving and addictive behavior. And, and we know from, from many decades of addiction neuroscience that as a person becomes more and more addicted, their brains become less sensitive to natural healthy pleasure. And so they feel this dysphoria, they feel this emptiness inside. And so that's what drives them to take higher and higher doses of the drug, just to just to preserve this dwindling sense of well-being. And so that propels craving and addictive behavior. But the, but my hypothesis is that we could actually reverse this process by teaching people to use mindfulness to savor natural, healthy pleasure. This might then decrease the pull of the drug and and reduce addictive behavior. And, and in fact, that's what we've shown now in, in multiple uh, neuroscientific studies of more. But to your other point about exposure, I think, so exposure alone isn't enough. And the reason why I say that is, you know, think about, think of the example of somebody suffering from pretty severe depression. And let's say you can get that person to go to a social event or a party, and there's all kinds of delicious food there on the table, and there's all kinds of interesting company, and people are laughing and having a good time. It's a very enriched environment. But the person is lost in misery in their own mind. All they can think about is how terrible they are, how, how much of a failure they are, the worries they have about the future. So they're exposed to the enriched environment in the external environment, but the internal environment is focused and captured by suffering. Yeah. So the notion here is that we need mind training approaches to enable the mind to become open to permeable to this enriched environment and to actually appreciate and absorb the pleasure and positivity that could be derived from the world around you. And without that kind of mind training, um, you could be in the most enriched environments in the world and still be suffering. Yeah. yeah. It's an inner, inner and an outer thing, isn't it, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I know we've been talking about, you know, sort of recovering people from addiction, but it sounds to me that this um, sort of therapeutic technique could also be sort of preemptive as well, uh, pro provide a protective factor. Um, if we're in, you know, that uh, sort of state, we're probably less likely to be drawn into the addictive behavior. Would that be, would that be a fair comment? Yes, I think so. You know, we, we haven't done a, a lot of prevention research yet, although that's that's an interesting direction to go in. The the one the one piece of data I do have around that is in, in people with chronic pain who are prescribed opioids but who have not yet moved on to full-blown opioid use disorder, we we've studied more in that population and shown that more decreases the risk of, of opioid misuse and and may prevent that trajectory. 
towards yeah. opioid use disorder. Um, but we need to do more work in that area. But I yeah. agree with you. It has a lot of promise as a it, prevention strategy. And and just as an enhancing, uh, you know, life enhancing sort of um, therapy as well. I, I, it sounds to me, yeah. Right. It's not just about ameliorating symptoms, but it, these these techniques combined, the, the integration of mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring, I think, have a lot to offer in terms of just boosting well-being in general. Yeah, yep. I'm just... Just thinking, I'm now granddad, which is great. I've got a couple of little ones, one's six and the other one's one. And I'm doing this, I've done the same thing with both of them. Uh, is, as we walk along the street, we come across tin things and metal poles and and so I'll bang on them and and sometimes make a noise. And so, there's a different pitch, a different sound. And uh, uh, both my granddaughter and now my little one-year-old, as he's starting to walk, he will just walk up to something and he'll just smack on it. And then he doesn't quite know how to hit it because it hurts. But uh, just that curiosity, well, curiosity is where a lot of my, my work goes, which of course mindfulness is about, you know, it's a, it's a, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a, another aspect of the sword there in mindfulness of, of getting connected and contained. Whereas once you are there, that that expansiveness outwards of uh, of curiosity for the savoring, and uh, we just don't do enough of that. Uh, we we walk down the street as if it's a place of uh, of punishment, you know, taking us from one difficult circumstance to another. We, as you say, if the inner world is dissatisfied and discouraged and dysfunctional and uh, and, and dis disoriented, then um, you could be in you could be in heaven and uh and it will be difficult it's still difficult that's such a good point and i don't want to uh i don't want to stop you but 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 i think we've covered some beautiful ground and we're sort of arriving at the end of our time and you know, we've said some things uh, is there anything we've missed or is there just a uh, just a nice little wrap up you'd like to do um for the session today yeah, no, I think we, I think we hit the high points. I think I think you know to emphasize this last the evolution of more and where the data is pointing towards this notion of of self transcendence. Um, I think this is this could represent an important next wave in the treatment of addiction um, because from a again from a neuroscientific perspective, when a person becomes addicted that it really affects their sense of self and the sense of self starts to become identified with and uh, entrenched in the addictive process. But if there was a way that we could actually suspend the default mode patterns of the self and then allow the mind to sort of reconfigure itself, to, to reconstruct or reauthor a new self, then I think that would have a lot of healing potential for addiction. And, and that moment of connection or expansiveness or numinosity that is possible through mindfulness meditation may provide that actual uh, inflection point, that switching point where we can let go of the old habits of self and open ourselves up to something new. Yeah, fantastic. Pretty good there, Matt. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast and uh, really looking forward to, to hearing you at the, uh, at the summit. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Well, that was as fascinating as I thought it was going to be, uh, Matt. Uh, yeah. And 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 he's um, he he really knows uh, uh, Ernie quite well. And uh, 
he was mentioning uh, just after we 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 cut off, he'd, he'd love to send a message to Ernie, but of course, uh, mm. you know, we've we've lost him now. But uh, anyway, I'll take it on board and 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 carry it with me. But it's it's wonderful yeah. to see people uh, so admiring of the the learning that we've gone through, and then adding to that. Now he's not just got an idea, but he's adding to the learning uh, about those ideas. Really wonderful. Fantastic. Now, uh, you can catch Dr. Garland at the Holistic Recovery Summit. Uh, the link is in the show notes. It's a free summit uh, and it's over a number of days. So check it out. There is a multitude of speakers to choose from. Um, so check that out. Link in the show notes. So I guess that's us for now. <laughs> it certainly is. Thanks for joining us here at the Science of Psychotherapy podcast and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now.